Well, good morning. Welcome again to In Town. Uh, we're glad that you're here. And if you are new here, let me try and orient you to what's going on. Uh, we do observe uh, the Christian calendar, and we are in the season of Lent. And it's a season of preparation as we come to the time of Palm Sunday. That is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then Good Friday, the crucifixion, and then coming to Easter Sunday with the resurrection. And Lent is meant to be a time of dedicated, devoted reflection upon the crucifixion. And so we've taken time to intentionally meditate on the person and the work of Christ, as particularly His strange work of dying and what that means and the scandal that that was. And so we're looking at the crucifixion from different perspectives. And this morning, we're actually jumping ahead chronologically because this conversation that we're about to read actually takes place after the resurrection, but it is an extended meditation on the crucifixion. So let me read our gospel passage, and then we'll get started. This is Luke 24. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus Himself came up and walked along them with them, but they were kept from recognizing Him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked Him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning Himself. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we get started. Lord, I pray that You would speak through me, if necessary, speak in spite of me, and always speak uh, beyond me. Lord, I pray that these words would be Your words, that You would inhabit them, that wherever we find ourselves this morning on the spiritual spectrum, believer or not, follower or skeptic, Lord, I pray that You would step into our lives in a powerful way, in a tangible way, that You would make Your presence known. We pray that You would do so now as we continue to reflect upon this passage, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this is going to be a bit of a painful illustration for a few people in this room. By my count, improbably, in this sort of smallest church in Portland, Oregon, there are six Alabama fans. I don't mean the band. I mean Alabama Crimson Tide, the football team. 
One of them is so dedicated that they named their dog Bama. Now, in 2013, the Crimson Tide were coming off two consecutive national championships. They were 11-0 and ranked number one in the nation when they came into their arch-rivals game with the, called the Iron Bowl to play. It was their biggest rival, and Auburn was ranked number four. Now, you should know that when you grow up in the state of Alabama, this rivalry doesn't just happen on that one Saturday. It gets played out on talk radio and in dining rooms and in newspapers 365 days a year. And so a win can redeem a terrible season, and a loss can completely torpedo a winning season. Now, though Auburn was number four, they were 10-point underdogs because Alabama was not only unbeaten, but they had mostly just trounced all of their opponents, winning every game but two by more than a 10-point margin. But Auburn stays in the game. They play Alabama close, and they come back to tie the game 28-28 to in the last few minutes of the game. Now, Alabama has a chance to come back. And they get the ball, and they start driving, but they run out of time. And so there's one second on the clock left, and they decide to kick a 57-yard field goal. Now, there's a lot of things that Alabama's good at. Field goals are not one. And so all of us local here that were gathered in the room watching the game are shouting at the screen, no, don't kick it, just down it, and go into overtime. You have a much better chance. Well, the thing about the field goals is that if they don't go through the uprights, you can field it. You can catch it. The other team can catch it and run it back. Well, it doesn't happen all that often, but what happened in this game almost never happens. Chris Davis for Auburn is standing at the very back of the end zone by the goalpost waiting for this kick, and it doesn't go through, and in fact goes right into his arms, and he begins to run. And what you do on kickoffs is you have almost all offensive linemen for the team that's kicking because you don't want the te- it to get blocked. Well, what are those guys? They are super slow. So there's all these offensive linemen and the kicker trying to catch Chris Davis, who is an incredible athlete. And he basically just runs right down the sidelines, 109 yards to win the Iron Bowl, dashing Alabama's hopes for a three-peat, crushing their hopes. Well, the crowd storms the field, and there's actually a number of seismographs in Alabama that registered a seismic activity during those two minutes. It was that loud and that crazy. Well, I'm one of those six Alabama fans, and uh, I was stunned. You see it happen, you know it's real. But you keep waiting for someone to throw a flag. You keep waiting for a redo. You keep waiting for the announcer to come on and say, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to put time back on the clock. This didn't really happen. This never happens. And so we're going to have another chance. It was a spectacular, disorienting defeat. Now, to completely trivialize a major moment in the Bible by connecting it with college football, Uh, that's surely how Jesus' followers must have felt, right? Spectacular defeat, completely disoriented. Their hopes had been dashed. Their leader had been defeated. 
And it's not just that they are sad and grieving, but they're disoriented, they're confused. It's not supposed to end like this. Jesus had begun His ministry a few years earlier saying that the kingdom is here, that the kingdom, the hopes of Israel are present in Him. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Redeemer who will come, the long-awaited one who will rescue Israel from its exile. And Israel had had this hope during the Exodus, but they are told that one greater than Moses is going to come. They had had this hope during the monarchy when they had a king on the throne, but they are told one even more powerful than David is going to come. They had had this hope of Messiah during the return of God's people from the Babylonian and Assyrian and Persian empire, but they are told that one greater than the prophets and the priests is going to come. Because why? There's a greater exile. There's a greater need. And yet, 400 years later, where we find ourselves in this passage, they're still oppressed, now by the imperial power of Rome. They're living a story in search of an ending. So when Jesus says, the kingdom is present in me, their hopes are rekindled. Finally, He's the one. He's going to redeem us. And then verse 21 what do they say? We thought He was going to be the one. We thought He was going to redeem Israel. You see, they're traveling down this road to hopeful liberation, and it's all of a sudden become a cul-de-sac. They're trapped. They're in a dead end, and it seems that Jesus has over-promised and under-delivered. Didn't we see Him do great things? Wasn't He a prophet, mighty in word and in deed? Didn't He see our hearts? Didn't He heal and now he's dead. He didn't restore the spiritual hopes of Israel. He didn't defeat the Romans. In fact, he died at their hands as a common thief. Yet, only a few short years later, we see these same people, his followers, who were so disoriented during the time of his death, proclaiming Christos, the Lord, the risen one, and going to their deaths with His name on their lips. And all of us, whether we're Christians or not, should at least be curious enough to ask why and how. What happened? What happened in the intervening time? The people most able and most likely to write a revealing tell-all of how Jesus overpromised and under-delivered under and left us without hope, exposing Him as a fraud, write accounts like Luke 24, Instead, they willingly die as followers of Jesus. Well, why? How? What happened? Well, these two people are walking along. One's named Cleopas, and we never get the name of the other one. And this stranger, who we know to be Jesus, walks up and asks them, what is it that you're discussing? And they're aghast. Do you not know? Are you the only one? in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened with Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth? How deeply ironic, right? Because He's the one person who does know. He's the one person who does know the story. Cleopas and this other traveler know the details of what's happened, but they don't know the full story. They've experienced some of the events, but they haven't yet figured out the significance of those events. They're in conflict, confused. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. You see, on top of their deep personal hurt 
and sorrow. They had this perplexing theological puzzle. How could this be? They're confounded, disappointed. Maybe they're angry at God for once again stoking the hopes of revolution and liberation only to disappoint them. Now, Jesus comes in, the stranger, and he begins to tell the story differently. You see, he could say, well, look, I'm here, I'm present, don't worry anymore. I've risen from the dead. And that's often how we want Jesus to appear in our lives, miraculously, quickly. I'm here, don't worry anymore. But you see, they had to grasp who Jesus really was rather than who they wanted him to be. He doesn't immediately heal their hurts or solve their grief. And even when he does open their eyes, it doesn't erase the last three days. They had a friend who had died a gruesome death. Instead of erasing the hard realities of their lives, he tells them a story. He gives them an interpretation of what they already knew, that they have to live in the midst of a story that is still unfolding. Did not the Messiah have to suffer, suffer? You see, that's a story. That's a narrative. That's a drama that is unfolding. Did he not have to suffer? You see, the Bible is not a random set of proof texts that we have to compile. It's not a random assortment of stories, but it's one story. It's one grand narrative of how the Creator God loves His creation so much that He would bring His saving purposes for the world to pass through the birth, suffering, and vindication of His own Son. N.T. Wright is a scholar of some repute, and he comments on this, and he says, their slowness of heart and lack of belief in the prophets had not therefore been a purely spiritual blindness. It had been a matter of telling and living the wrong story, or at least the right story in the wrong way. But now suddenly, with the right story in their head and in their hearts, a new possibility, huge, astonishing, and breathtaking, started to emerge before them. Suppose the reason that the key would not fit the lock was that they were trying the wrong door. Suppose Jesus' execution was not the clear disproof of His messianic vocation, but its confirmation and climax. Suppose the cross was not one more example of the triumph of paganism over God's people, but was actually God's means of defeating evil once and for all. Suppose this was, after all, how the exile was designed to end, how sins were to be forgiven, and how, to, how the kingdom was to come. Now, I suppose it's reasonable to uh, suppose that everyone here has some conception of who Jesus is. But how does He fit into your story? Does He fit into your story? Do you have the right key to unlock the right door? Well, maybe you're here this morning and you're not clearly, not sure what to make of Jesus. He's clearly intelligent. He's charismatic. He has this long history of people that have followed Him. But, you know, he lived 2,000 years ago, and those were simpler times. Those were pre-modern times. People were primed to follow this articulate revolutionary hero. But, you know, if he's so charismatic and if he's so intelligent, if he's trying to establish a following, he couldn't be more tactically inept. 
He constantly befriends the wrong people, the poor, the downtrodden, the marginalized, and he consistently offends the wrong people, the powerfully violent. If he's trying to manipulate simple people to follow him, he's done the one thing that would have blown away all of those primitive, immature hopes. He goes and gets himself killed. You see, there are lots of people around Jerusalem that were claiming to be Messiah, and a lot of them had followings. But what happens is then they get killed, and the following dissipates. And it proves that they weren't the true Messiah once and for all. Even these followers know that. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, but, but he got himself killed. Their hopes are dashed. They're not duped. They're not simpletons. And you have to admit, to go from utter despondency to triumphant, fearless, risky preaching, as these followers did, to the cost of their own lives, that's a huge change that we have to have an answer for, that we have to wrestle with. How? Why? What happened? Well, the Christian story is that Easter happened, is that the crucifixion wasn't the end of the story. It was the beginning of the climax. It was the beginning of this new thread that was there throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, but that Jesus alone could pull. He's not like the other crucified messiahs because He's risen. Or maybe Jesus, you feel like you do have a read on Him. You're not unsure, but you feel like you do know. He's a spiritual teacher. He's an example to follow. And this would come in two different forms. One, maybe we have great respect for Jesus. He gives us some helpful data to life. He gives us some maxims to live by. Maybe Jesus has a prominent place on, of honor in your pantheon of religious teachers. He's up there, pretty important guy. Or another form may be that he teaches us true propositions about God and life and the future, and the key is to know and believe them. Well, the first version of this is essentially non-Christian, right? It's a humanistic appreciation of Jesus and who he was, his life and teaching. Maybe he's first among equals, perhaps, but he's not God incarnate. The other version of this is religious, but only marginally Christian. Jesus is sort of a theological abstraction that we are simply to believe that these events happened and believe that He went to the cross for me. To the first, His his data, His maxims, don't seem all that helpful. (laughs) They went and they got Him killed. And should we follow someone who claimed to be the Son of God who wasn't? Is he worth listening to? To the second, if you're a patient facing an operation, it's important to believe that the doctor's credentials are real, that they know what they're doing, that they've done this operation before. And it's also wise maybe to go on WebMD and look at the operation and see what happens and hear people's experience. But no matter how well you know these things, the operation itself, the doctor's credentials, the in and outs of what's going to happen no matter how much you assent to the prognosis, it doesn't cure you. Knowledge is good and necessary, but it's not surgery. And many well-meaning Christians see Jesus as little more than a dispenser of religious insight. And our primary response to them is to believe that 
He has the right path. We must get the propositions right. But there's not all that much difference between that and the humanistic appropriation of it because it appropriates Jesus' wisdom and His teaching without true allegiance, without it seeping into your crevices of your whole life. But see, the crucifixion, if we really wrestle with it, won't let us appropriate Jesus in either of those two ways, which really is patronizing Him. It's taking apart a truth and making it the whole, which it's not. You see, Cleopas and his companion would have passed the theological exam. They knew the data, but they missed the drama. They knew the events, but they didn't know the story. Jesus comes and says, follow Him. Not simply His teaching, but Him. Submit, die, surrender, be crucified with Him. Join Him in living in an alternative story. You see, friends, the the cross is far more than a theology of how our sins get paid for. It's the very summation of the Christian life and practice, and it's the beginning of God undoing all evil and everything that is untrue. And how does He do this? He does it by going to the cross and letting evil do its worst to him. What he is saying, friends, is on that cross that evil has run its course, that evil has expended all of its energy and power, and its reign is over. It has done its worst to Jesus. Evil in God's economy is not directed then towards evildoers, but he takes it on himself and in himself and in his body evil's story is over, and there is a new story beginning. He was going to redeem, but he was crucified. Juxtaposition is very important because crucifixion universally signified defeat and humiliation, utter humiliation. But Jesus radically reinterprets it so that it comes to symbolize the very nature of God and how he relates to his world. In an apparent spectacular defeat, God's ultimate goodwill for His purposes and for His people was accomplished. On the cross, God not only forgives sin, but He defeats the forces of evil that oppose God and try to separate His people from Him. And God says, I will not be separated. I will come and rescue them. I will come and find them. Jesus goes down in spectacular defeat to be the sacrificial redeemer, the one who rescues not simply from political exile, but from ultimate exile, the one who is willing to give up his life to bring each of us home eternally. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that we would learn how to appropriate your story not just having our mental pictures reassessed and reconfigured, but letting your story be our story, letting it capture us, draw us into a grander narrative of giving our lives away on behalf of others. Father, we thank you 
for our rescue. We thank You for the forgiveness of sins. And let it not just stay in a mental box inside our head, but let it be unlocked and unpackaged so that we are changed people, changed as a church, changed as individuals. And as we continue to approach Good Friday and Easter, I pray that You would give us uh, time and intent to meditate on these things. If we're not believers, to question them, to look at them, to inspect them, and to follow the truth wherever it may lead, or for those of us who know the story quite well, that it would take hold of us and it would grip us and that we would take time to be drawn up again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.